If you guys have your Bibles with you, open up to Isaiah 9. I'm going to be a little bit all over the place this morning because this Advent season is a bit topical. So um, I'm going to be preaching from a bunch of different texts. But the topic this morning is peace. And Isaiah 9 has a great passage on peace. So if you open with me to Isaiah 9, I'll read this text and then we'll jump in. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every tramp, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this Advent season. Thank you for this day, the Lord's day that we gather together to worship you, to hear your word taught, to pray, to sing, to praise you, to renew our covenant um, in the blood of Christ represented in the Lord's supper table. We thank you for all these things. We ask that your word would convict us this morning and encourage us and shape us, strengthen us and empower us to live on mission for you and to live more nearly uh, to you in obedience and in love uh, for your name and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are a culture that's dominated by the concept of faking it till you make it. Um, this can be a good thing. This can drive people to try new things, right? Like, let's say you see a pretty girl and you want to talk to her, but you're too scared. Maybe you fake it a little bit. Maybe you act like someone who wouldn't be scared and you just talk to her anyway and see what happens. That can be good. Uh, or it can be bad in, say, uh, resumes or job interviews that you're faking it until you make it, right? You just lie about a skill that you could have over the weekend and, uh, and hope like crazy they don't ask you to uh, prove that skill before you can scramble to learn it. That would be a bad version of fake it till you make it. Um, and so one thing I see show up over and over and over again in this category of people faking it in our culture today is that people are doing okay, <laughs> that they have peace. That, that they are at peace um, with themselves and with the world around them. I think they are clearly not. And so this, this week, like I said uh, before I, I read the text and prayed, this, this week of the Advent season, we're focusing on the concept of peace. 
So peace as it relates to the coming of Christ, and that's what Advent is for. Advent is the arrival, the coming of something or someone. And so the, the church has historically taken these four weeks leading up to Christmas Day, uh, these four Sundays to celebrate different topics and themes related to the coming of Christ and, and taking this time to anticipate his second coming as well, to focus on his first coming and think about his second coming. Um, and so I will start by asking you all, and obviously don't answer out loud, but think to yourself, do I have peace? Do I have peace? Um, some of you just experienced the Thanksgiving holiday with relatives, and you would say, no, I don't know that I have peace, actually. With Christmas coming and more relative time, I don't know that I have peace, um, right? And, you know, or maybe it's you, yeah, Ken, we're not talking about you. Don't worry, bud. Um, uh, but no, it's, uh, you know, you think about time with the relatives, maybe it's the in-laws that it's like, I don't know if we can do another holiday. And it's like, no, actually, the in-laws are the escape from the blood relatives, you know, or, uh, or maybe it's uh, the cost of Christmas presents or all the travel, or maybe it's crunch time at work before the end of the year, whatever it is, sometimes right now, Christmas season, as we focus on peace, maybe you don't feel like you have peace. And so we mostly, we think of peace as a feeling. Usually we think of it as a feeling, or even uh, more accurately, sometimes we think of it as the absence of feelings. We think of peace as the absence of stress, or anxiety, or guilt, or strife, or fear, um, or maybe just the absence, the absence of my stomach churning, right? <laughs> that, that could be peace. Um, and so if we aren't currently experiencing those bad things, we think that we're, we're feeling peace, we're having peace. But the other way to think of it is less subjective, less of a feeling, right? There's, there's another way of thinking of peace, and it's that there's an objective peace, a relational peace. And this is when there is no conflict between two parties, that you have peace, right? So two nations, if they're at war with each other, when the war ends, they often will sign peace treaties, saying we are officially not at war. I don't care how you feel about it, right? There's probably, at the end of a war, a lot of citizens that don't feel like there's peace, but the peace treaty says no matter how you feel about it, there is legal, objective peace between the two parties. And there's this Old Testament word, shalom, which we translate as peace a lot of times in our, our Old Testament uh, Bible. Uh, and it's wrapped up a lot of these concepts, the feeling of peace, um, the, the lack of stress. Uh, the, the idea here is also wholeness or completeness or things as they should be. Um, whereas uh, we normally, we think of peace as the lack of strife. Oftentimes the Hebrew concept of peace was a positive one, that you had shalom when things were as they should be. It's a positive view of it rather than viewing it from the negative side. And so when things were made right, you had shalom, you had peace. And this would include, of course, lack of war, but it was more than that. Shalom is essentially what we're all longing for in our hearts, a peace um, in, in the positive sense. Things are as they were to be, that we are as we were made to be, um, the world is as it was made to be. Um, that that's real peace. And so I wanted to talk about um, three things this morning. Uh, I want to talk about counterfeit peace, the, the fake peace that I was talking about in the, in the intro there. I want to talk about counterfeit peace, ways that we uh, wrongly or illegitimately try to seek peace um, in, in our lives and in the world. So counterfeit peace, I want to talk about pretended peace, when we just pretend there's peace, and then what actual accomplished peace looks like. So first, counterfeit peace. The first way that I think our world often tries to solve the problem of peace is like I said, by seeking it through illegitimate or insufficient ways. So how is peace accomplished? Um, we all 
try to accomplish peace based on our beliefs, based on our worldview. And so depending on how you see the world, its purpose um, or what's most satisfying or what's most ultimate in the world, that will determine how you pursue peace and why you think you don't have it. So your beliefs, your way you see the world will determine those things. Peace will always seem just out of reach, though, unless you come to the Christian worldview because idols are a cruel taskmaster. And so it's ultimately, the, the reason so many people don't have peace is it's ultimately a, it's a problem of idolatry. When we make things that are not God into little gods in our hearts, we think that those things will bring us peace. That's why we do it. We, they, basically everything in all of creation is crying out to us, I will satisfy. I will bring you peace. Everything is saying that. Relationships, money, food, wealth, material things, lack of material things, you know, there's poverty gospels, there's wealth gospels, there's everything across the board. Everything in all of creation cries out to us in our hearts and says, I will finally bring you peace, I will satisfy you. And the only one that's not a liar is God, right? The only one that isn't lying to us is God. And so uh, we have these things that we turn into little idols. We end up lacking peace because we don't think we have enough of that thing or we haven't sought it properly. You could say real idolatry has never been tried um, but, but I'll give you a few examples, right? Um, people do this today with money. This is a big one. Wealth, materialism, money, things, stuff. Um, and if we think, like a modernist, that uh, at root there is no, there's no spiritual realm, that we're just material beings, um, that has consequences. That will affect how you see the world and why you think things are going wrong in the world. If you think that we're only stuff then stuff is gonna be the problem. The lack of it, the too much of it, wrong distribution of it, and we see this right now, um, that people think they lack this shalom peace because things are not as they should be in realms of stuff. And so they try to solve it then with stuff, right? This is the root cause of the rising desire for communism, materialism, socialism, and it's funny because you have both like communists and then the materialists, like capitalists, both sides are like, it's about the stuff, everybody, and it's like, well, you know, might have different ways of seeking a solution there, but ultimately we are not just material beings. It's not just about stuff or unequal distributions of wealth. There is an inherent, I'm sorry, there's not an inherent evil to owning more things than other people, and there's not an inherent oppression in owning less things than other people. This is, this is a lie that is based on a materialist view of the universe. And so if there was an inherent evil to owning more stuff than other people, then God would be evil because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. Right, so wealth is, is, is this faulty assumption that that's, that's what's gonna fix everything, right? Um, and so I won't spend a ton of time on it because believe it or not, I will get back to the Rebels in Babylon series. I will cover <laughs> wealth and economics at some point, um, hopefully in the beginning of the new year. But, um, but this, the point is that there's this drive for peace and what methods you take for creating it will fail from the start, if you start with faulty assumptions, they will, they will fail to, to get you peace. Um, and I think about like, think, you know, in this materialism wealth idea, think about our decadent nation. We have so much crazy wealth that all of us live like kings and queens. We do. Um, our wealth would actually shame, our luxuries would actually shame basically any king or queen or pharaoh from pretty much any other point in history in all of time. Uh, and so like pretty much, yeah, if you go about 100 years back, any other like world ruler couldn't imagine the luxuries and ease that all of us just have by default for where we live right now. Um, even if you think you're relatively poor, and you might be compared to the other people that you know, um, relative to all of human history, you most certainly have more luxuries, more wealth, if not than all kings and pharaohs 
could have ever dreamed of. And so for example, heat. I would venture a guess, none of us have had to cut down manually our wood this week to heat our homes and have to continually tend to fire and, can, and keep on chopping wood to, to make the house warm, right? That's probably the case for most of us. And so, um, and it's not just heat when it's cold out, you get cold when it's hot out. You, you can make it cold when it's hot out and you can not just do that, but you get to set the exact temperature to the degree that you want it to be all day and all night, all year. And the only thing that probably would get in the way of that is the other person you live with messing with the dial when you're not looking, right? So like we, we live in, in, a, in a place of luxury that most people never would have even dreamed of just a hundred years ago. Kings, rulers, pharaohs, or water, right? Most of us do not have to carry our water for the day from a place far away and, and that's all you get and you have to purify it somehow if you're gonna drink it or eat with it. Um, most of us have a water tower and pipes as modern day, you can think of them as servants that bring you a constant and never ending flow of water that's already purified and drinkable and again, at the exact temperature that you want at all times. This was totally unthinkable, this wealth and this luxury before now. Or I think about, Liz and I have talked about this, entertainment, especially when we go to the movies and you get the big like recliner, sit back, and someone will like bring you food. It's crazy, right? We have the world's most elaborate and expensive entertainment created by the world's most talented artisans and story writers that's available for basically for free or an extremely low cost for basically all people in their homes, in their pockets, all day, every day. Um, and this kind of wealth and abundance is unthinkable, even just like one or two generations ago, um, and, and all of human history before that. Or uh, this, I'll, this will be my last example, foreign foods. Not long ago, here in America, because my mom talks about this, getting an orange in your stocking on Christmas morning was a luxury because how do you get an orange in the Midwest <laughs> in Christmas? I mean, that's, that's crazy talk, right? But this, so this was a luxury, right? And most of us don't think of oranges as an extreme luxury in winter because we live in, we live in the Midwest. None of us would think of it that way. Um, and, and before that, right, or, or since then, I should say, we have basically any kind of recipe, spice, nationality, meal that you can think of that you could just beep boop on your phone and un in under an hour, a servant delivers it hot and fresh with utensils to eat it with at your door. That's amazing, that is amazing, right? And even if it's like, well, I can't afford to do that every day, but you could afford to do it once, you're wealthy. I mean, that's no king, no pharaoh, no queen in all of human history could have imagined the wealth and power. And despite all of that, instead of having peace, we are seeing alarming increases in depression and suicide and unhappiness and medication use and relational strife. So making an idol out of money and stuff, I promise, will not lead to shalom peace. It won't. It's not a lack of it. It's not an abundance of it. That is not the reason you're lacking peace. And we can't serve two masters. Jesus says that either you will hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that word money is actually mammon. There was a God based around materialism and wealth. You can't serve God and mammon. So materialism is just one example of how our world's seeking peace, completeness, this counterfeit peace, seeking that nagging feeling of guilt or shame or emptiness to go away. And we see this show up in other ways too, countless other ways. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. 
Um, our sinful nature wants to put its trust and to find peace in basically anything besides God, and everything in creation is more than willing to say, yes, I will do that for you. And our hearts are very willing to believe it. Um, a couple more examples, and I could spend all time in the world on all the ways we're idolatrous, including myself, but um, one of the other major ways, I think, like I said, mammon or materialism is a big way in our culture right now. The other way I see is the idol of self-definition, that I get to decide who I am, how I define myself, how I'm seen and observed in the world. And so rather than realizing that it's our sin and our separation from God that's causing emptiness and pain and that feeling, that lack of peace, we, we have this good news that you get to redefine yourself however you see fit. And this can be as extreme as your gender or as trivial as just defining your image through social media. But both are offering this ability to essentially create a world where you're exactly who you want to be and people will see you exactly as you want to be seen. And it's completely apart from God, not being satisfied to be made in his image. That's an extreme idol in the world. And if you think, wow, yeah, the world out there, it's real dark, they care about materialism and how they're seen. It's all of us. If you think you've, you've left the world unscathed, it, I promise some corner of your heart loves the things of this world and is fighting to serve God and mammon and wants to be seen exactly how you want to be seen. It's human nature. And so oftentimes we are seeking peace because we know we are guilty, right? Maybe, it, uh, maybe we wouldn't necessarily use those words that it's the reason I'm lacking peace is because of my guilt before God, especially if you're not a Christian, you might not use those words. Um, but we have sins on the books that we, haven't, uh, that, we, that we feel haven't been made right and it gives us a nagging feeling in our bones. And so we try to deal with it on our own terms. And some of the ways we try to deal with this nagging feeling of guilt or shame is, so and I've done them all, so let's walk through a few, hiding like Adam and Eve, right? You sin and you try and cover it up and you bury it and you hope no one will notice and you build up your own fig leaves and you hope that God won't see you and won't ask, where are you, Adam, right? And so, uh, and I've said this before, if, if, if you feel like every time you come to church or you see a Christian friend or a Christian leader or you read your Bible or whatever, you have this sense of like, like I'm holding my breath and just hoping no one will ask me about that thing, that's hiding. You, you're, you're being Adam and Eve. You, you're, you're being Adam and Eve and it means that you've not truly dealt with your sin at the cross. If you have this, this sense of, I'll come to church every week, but boy, I hope nobody really gets too deep and asks me too many questions, that you, you need to deal with your sin at the cross rather than trying to hide it or cover it up like Adam and Eve. Um, the second way we do this is we blame others. Again, like Adam, he's a good example of this. You see, <laughs> you see God, it wasn't me. It was this woman you gave me, right? So somehow it's, it's God's fault for giving him Eve and it's Eve's fault for giving him the fruit. And what's funny, I, I never noticed this before, but interestingly, at this point in time, there was literally no one else on earth for Adam to blame. He, it's literally every other person's fault but mine, right? And, and it feels like we still do that today and it, and it can feel that way, but Adam literally blamed every person on earth but himself. And I thought that was really funny. Um, and so, yeah, like Adam, we, we say, God, it's, it's these blessings you've given me, it's these, these problems you've given me, whatever, it's your fault, God. It's everyone's fault but mine. We, we blame shift. And so that's another way. Or last, we just plain lie. Someone says, hey, are you still struggling with this sin? Nope. Nope, no further questions, Your Honor. Plead the fifth, you know, and, and that's the age-old strategy of adding the sin of lying to your other sins to hope your sin goes away. And it's, that's an interesting strategy. I hope it works out for you. But this isn't actually dealing with it, right? You are not dealing with your sin. You're managing your image. 
You're not dealing with your sin, you're managing your image. And I can go on and on, but I think you get the point. We're, we all seek peace, but if your worldview, if your beliefs are broken, if God's word is not your standard, you're seeking it in the wrong place and you will attempt to seek it the wrong way. These strategies come from a broken worldview. And so we all want shalom. And the first way we seek peace is through counterfeit peace in idolatry and sin management. Second way though, is pretended peace. Pretended peace. So the second way we seek peace is through what I'm calling pretended peace. And it's when you actually don't have peace and you just give up trying to get it. <laughs> you give up trying to solve this way of guilt and shame and, or whatever you, know, whatever you feel like is causing you the lack of peace. And instead you just pretend you have it. You just say there's peace. And this actually shows up a lot in scripture. What's interesting, Jeremiah 6.14 and Jeremiah 8.11 are the same verse. So within two chapters, Jeremiah feels the need to, to hit this one again. And it's this, they, meaning the prophets, they have healed the wound of my people lightly by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I'll read that again. They, the prophets, they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Or Ezekiel 13 says this, therefore thus says the Lord God, because you, and the prophets, you have uttered falsehood and, seeing lying, and seen lying visions, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people nor enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. Basically, I'm kicking you out of the covenant. Why? Or, and and nor, there, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I'm the Lord God. And he says, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. So a few times, right, the prophets talk about that other prophets are liars, that they say there's peace when there is no peace. And when people build up a wall to hide like Adam and Eve, the prophets are happy to help them whitewash it and cover it up. So when all else fails and you can no longer work your methods at false and worthless counterfeit peace, you just declare there's peace when there is none, right? I think about, if you're familiar, Michael Scott just declares bankruptcy. He just said, I declare bankruptcy. And it's like, that doesn't work that way. You're not, you're not actually, yeah. So, and, and so the, the other way of putting this is it's called lying. <laughs> it's called self-denial. I'm sorry, it's called being in denial with yourself. And the people most guilty of this, if you survey the Bible, is religious leaders, right? Jeremiah 6 and 8 and Ezekiel 13 talk about the prophets of God healing the wounds of the people lightly by saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Meaning, rather than telling you the truth, that you are in a dire situation, that the reason you lack peace is because you're a sinner, you're messed up and broken. Rather than saying that, that would really solve it, the prophets of Israel lie to them instead and just declare everything's fine. It's the, I've talked about it before, it's that dog meme where he's sitting in the room that's totally on fire and this is fine, you know. Um, this is what the prophets were doing, right? We see this rampant, not just in the world, but especially, I think, in the lives of Christians, pastors that are too afraid of upsetting their people, and so instead, deal with the root issue, uh, instead of dealing with the root issues that are absolutely plaguing their people, are content to just say, this is fine, everything is fine. And one of the ways, and this is harder to catch, one of the ways that this happens most often, I think, especially in Christendom today, is by omission, it's not that the pastor will come forward and say everything is fine. It's what they fail to say, right? If a pastor only ever preaches on things that are technically true, but are not what anyone is struggling with, or not what the world is waging war on us with, this is a sin of omission. 
Um, I remember, so Greg and Seth and I went to a conference a few years ago for pastors. It was all pastors in the room. It was a big stadium basically full of pastors. And talk after talk after talk, I just kept thinking, who on earth are you talking to? Like, who is struggling with this, especially in this room, right? You'd see this guy get up on stage with a room full of pastors who are reformed, conservative theologically. They paid to be here. They drove from all over the country and all over the world to be here. And this guy gets on stage and he's like, I'm going to say it. I'm going to take the hard stance. The Bible's the word of God. Cheers. Just, oh, thank you. And it's like, yeah, I sure. Fa- yeah, fair enough. We all know that. That's why we're here. That's why we're pastors. And I'm not saying that uh, nobody is talking about that there's errors in the word of God. Fair enough. But there were real issues going on at the time. There's real issues today that I feel like pastors will not touch with a 30-foot pole. And, and, and so when, when the war is waging all around you and you take the brave stance of fighting where there's no battle, that's a sin of omission. And I think that's a, a way of pastors saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And this also shows up tragically when well-meaning Christians, and, and maybe you've done this or someone's done this to you, But someone, uh, whether it's you or you're talking to somebody else, God is brought to a place of conviction about their sin. They actually feel really broken up about where they're at and that something's wrong and they say how bad they are to you or you say, man, I'm so bad. And instead of saying, yes, you really are that bad, self or person I'm talking to, and you're worse if you can see your own heart the way God sees it. Instead of saying the truth and that there's good news that your sins can be paid for and forgiven if you would just repent of them and trust in Jesus. And this is, again, true for Christians. Christians need to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, not just the one time. This is a daily thing. Instead, we try to talk them or ourselves out of the conviction and say, you aren't that bad. Don't beat yourself up. This is a healing of the wound lightly, as Jeremiah would say. This is healing the wound lightly. And I know it comes from a place of wanting peace for that person. You see they're broken up. You see they're hurting. And and I hate that. I hate seeing that. I hate seeing that in myself. And And you want to help, but it hurts because there's a real wound. That's why it's hurting. And so they're, they're feeling, or you're feeling, the effects of real sin and guilt and shame in your soul. And the conviction is God weighing his hand heavily on you or on that person. And you want relief for that. You want to bring relief. And I get it. But to heal the wound lightly is to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. If you are truly convicted over your sin, it's because you're truly at odds with God over it, and it needs to be repented of. The last thing in the world that someone should feel is peace. When they're convicted about their sin, when they're unrepentant of their sin, the last thing in the world they should feel is peace. And so to lie to yourself or to lie to others and say it's not that bad is healing the wound lightly. It's healing a terminal illness with Band-Aids. It's like giving placebo pills to a cancer patient. They might walk away very happy that you gave them to them, but almost immediately they will realize the wound was never healed. And if we've not come to a place of true peace, it's because the root cause of our pain has not been dealt with. And this is what it means to heal the wound lightly. This prophetic whitewash that God warns about in Ezekiel 13 when he says, because you've uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore I am against you, declares the Lord God. And oftentimes, the desire to say these falsehoods um, and give people and even ourselves a false sense of peace and to whitewash the situation doesn't come just from the heart of the preacher. It doesn't just come from weak and cowardly pastors. It's because we don't want to hear it, (laughs) right? It's not just some guy is saying peace, peace when there is no peace. It's because we want to hear peace, even if there isn't any. Isaiah 30, 9 through 11, it says, For they are a rebellious people, lying children. 
children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And they say to the prophets, don't prophesy what's right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Lead the way, or I'm sorry, leave the way and turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's us, right? Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak smooth things. In some form or another, even if we wouldn't use those exact words, all of us can say that that has been the cry of our hearts at some point. I don't want to hear any more about how holy I'm not. Please speak to us smooth things. Don't tell me about holiness. Don't tell me about the Holy One of Israel. Our sinful nature likes sin. If we're honest, there's part of us that likes sin, even when you're a Christian. Now, it's not, it's not the new part of you that's gonna go on for eternity and grow in sanctification, but our sinful nature is not gone until Christ returns, and so there's a part of us that likes sin and hates to hear these sharp edges of the word of God. We want to hear peace, peace, even if there is no peace, and we sometimes want our, he- our wounds healed lightly because almost always healing the wound lightly hurts a lot less. <laughs> it's much less invasive. Um, but it's, it's far more painful to heal the wound rightly. And so we need to come to terms with how deep our sin goes and how very painful the process of, of dealing with it can be. Um, I know a lot of you guys are readers of the Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you grew up reading it. I didn't, but we've read it with Sadie um, just in the last year. We've read the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, you'll remember Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And sorry, spoilers, but it's a 70-year-old book, so I think it's fair game now. Um, Eustace is a little boy who steals treasure um, because he's got a greedy dragon heart, basically. And, and, and so he steals this treasure, but it's cursed. And so he actually turns into a dragon. And there comes a point, and he, he doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. He wants to be a little boy. There comes a point where Aslan the lion, typologically representing Christ, leads him to remove his scales. He, he wants him to be a boy again. And Eustace tries three times on his own, and it hurts a little, and he makes no progress in undragoning himself. And so Aslan needs to do it. I'll quote here from the book. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone straight into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done to myself three times over only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, referring to his dragon scales, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than any of the others I had found. And I found that all the pain was gone, and I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Church, we need the sword of the Spirit. We need the Word of God to cut us, to pierce us, deeper than we are comfortable with, We need for Christ to tear away our resemblance to the serpent. We need to undragon ourselves and rip the scales away. And if we submit ourselves completely and wholly to God, it will hurt far more than if we try to heal ourselves and heal our wounds lightly. But it will be real healing. We will no longer be scratching lightly at our dragon hearts and making no progress. We will find true sanctification. So what does this look like in the word? Where or how can we find true peace? Not counterfeit peace, not pretended peace, but actually accomplished peace. 
Uh, John 14, 27, Jesus teaches his disciples something interesting. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Um, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus is teaching that there's a kind of peace that the world can offer. There is a temporary, fleeting, fake, counterfeit peace. There is a peace, peace when there is no peace kind of peace that the world can offer us. And Jesus is saying that he has real peace that he's going to leave with his apostles, real apostolic peace that actually quiets our troubled hearts, that actually causes us not to be afraid. What is it? How is this accomplished? Colossians 1, 19 and 20, it says, For in him, Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So unlike the false and counterfeit peace that we try to accomplish with God on our own through whether it's idolatry or sin management, image management, the Apostle Paul is saying that Jesus actually makes peace. He actually accomplishes it. He creates peace. He accomplished it for you. And how did he do it? He did it by the blood of his cross. His cross that he carried and was nailed to, the beatings he took, the scourging, the whipping, the mocking, and the being nailed to a cross, uh, this accomplishes peace for us. It was all to accomplish peace. And we could never have done it, even on our best day, even with our best intentions, and even with our best deeds. It was never going to happen. And so the blood that Jesus spilled was wrath-satisfying sacrifice for us. We see this in Isaiah 53.5. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. His punishments brought us peace with God. He's taking punishment, or he was taking punishment that we rightly deserve because we're breakers of the law. How do we take hold of this sacrifice, though? If it's accomplished thousands of years ago by some other guy in another nation, how do we make it ours? How do we take hold of peace with God? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by faith. By faith, we accept the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Paul says that we are justified by faith, meaning in the heavenly courts, God is actually banging the gavel all day, every day when he looks at you, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And so since we have been justified by faith, Paul says, declared not guilty by faith, we have peace with God. There's an objective having of peace because we are not guilty. No more striving, no more managing our image, no more covering up our sin. You can actually deal with it. You can actually confess it to brothers and sisters in Christ because it's been dealt with, it's paid for. You're no longer under the weight of it. No more striving. By faith it is dealt with forever. And then as I read to start us, Isaiah chapter nine, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, that the government would be on his shoulders. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it. And so um, Isaiah says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Why does that matter? It matters because he says the government will be on his shoulder and his name will be Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom. Christ came as the light of the world, the Prince of Peace, to take the throne of David and to put his governing of the whole world on his back to carry it. 
So how does that accomplish peace? How does, he's born, he's the prince of peace. How does that accomplish peace for us? Well, verse seven, Isaiah ties it together. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end from this time forth forevermore. So as our savior, Jesus accomplishes a legal peace. Yeah, he accomplishes a legal peace uh, for us, an objective peace with his blood. That ends the war between us and God. So we've talked about that already. He ends the war, he signs the peace treaty in his blood, the legal peace is accomplished. But then, through the governing of Christ, we see the peace spread. As I am made right with God, vertically, I think it's just the wind. As I'm made right with God vertically, um, and as my family is made right with God vertically, and then my neighbors are made right with God vertically, and this spreads, now we start to see um, it moves us not just from enemies of God to children of God, and we're all in the same household now, and it's made right with God this way, and everyone else around me is, it's no longer just vertical peace between us and God. It now starts to create horizontal peace between me and those around me. This is why Isaiah, he links the increase of the governing of Christ, the rule of Christ, he links that to the increase of the peace of Christ together, right? So the more and more Christ governs my life, the more peace I will experience and grow closer and closer to him. And the more I'm ruled by Christ, submitted to him, the closer I get to being made whole and complete, that shalom idea. But as this happens in the lives of those around me, we also get closer together. Peace begets peace in this way. So this is, this is what we're praying for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that God would continue to rule us, that his increase of his government would grow in my life. He's, he's, I mean, there's areas of my life I'm not completely submitted to the Lord because I'm a sinner, right? We all are, right? Now, if, it's, if you're conscious of it, you should resubmit it to him. You should obey him. But, but there's gonna be areas, little corners of your heart that you're not even aware are not submitted to the Lord. And so we pray the increase of his government in our hearts and our lives would grow. And we pray that for our unconverted friends and family and neighbors. We pray that for everybody around us. And that's what we're praying, your kingdom come. And so to close a few kind of applications here. Peace with God should be a fixed reality for the Christian. I know I've gone over this already, but we should be giving ourselves to daily time in the Bible to remind ourselves that we have peace with God through the gospel. And daily time in prayer, asking God for that kingdom to come and for that peace to increase. And so, and, and also that's why we come together each week. We come together, among other things, to be reminded that we have a new covenant with God. We take the Lord's Supper each week, as we will in a moment, and we're remembering the accomplished peace that we have with God through the blood of Christ. We eat the bread of remembrance because we're so prone to forget that our peace with God is final, it's accomplished outside of ourselves. This is something that happened in time apart from ourselves, our good works and even our sins. We, 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 we receive it by faith. It's something accomplished for us. So the peace with God should be a fixed reality for the Christian. Second, peace happens relationally between us because we forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. And then sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow, but if you're harboring some kind of bitterness or a slight made against you, or even a miscommunication that made you mad, that happens, or even some true evil committed against you. If you're holding on to that, your king has commanded you to release it. We are Christians, and as Christians, again, we're taught in the Lord's Prayer that we would pray that God would forgive us as we forgive others. And if you haven't taken the time to really think through that, that's a hard prayer to pray. God, forgive me exactly the way I forgive other people. Man, 
Now, thankfully, he's going to forgive you better than that because he's perfect. Um, But we pray, we're taught to pray that we would be generous forgivers and not stingy or picky in our forgiveness. So peace happens relationally when when we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And then last, peace is worked out um, as we all seek to obey Christ. Obedience has gotten a bad reputation in the church, I think, in the last few decades. Um, But my last point of application, the one about forgiving each other, we find that in a lot of sermons um, in Christendom in the West. We we hear a lot about forgiving other people, and that's important. It's a more common message. But to say that peace is accomplished through our obedience to Christ is a more rare message. (laughs) And I don't mean that we're obeying Christ in our own strength and we're making the peace happen. Colossians 129, Paul says, for this I toil, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So even our obedience is Christ's work powerfully in us. But what I mean is as we obey Christ by the power of the spirit, uh, you know, we obey the law of God, something happens and it's like spokes on a wheel. The closer we get to Christ um, and the closer you get to Christ and the closer this person gets to Christ and the closer this person gets to Christ, we all find that we're closer to each other. Peace is accomplished through obeying Christ, through being submitted to his rule and his reign. And so the closer we get to him in nearness and obedience, the closer we will find we're living in harmony with those around us. The increase of his government and of his peace is accomplished that way. And he gets all the glory. And he, and he says in Ephesians 2, he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So if I'm united to Christ and you're united to Christ, then we are united to each other objectively and relationally. This is hope. This is the hope that we have for peace in the world. So remember the gospel peace is accomplished for you. Share the gospel peace with others being generous forgivers. And last, increase his government and his peace in the world by submitting and obeying to Christ. And as Colossians 3.15 says, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you so much that you would send your son to be incarnate for us, to take on flesh and blood, to live a perfect life we fail to live, to die a sacrificial death that we deserve to die and that the Prince of Peace has come. So we're gonna sing with all we've got. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and even fill our, our hearts with peace. Um, if we've submitted to you, if we're repentant of any known sin, if we have trusted Christ for our salvation, there should be real peace. And so Lord, I pray that we would feel even that subjective feeling peace as we walk with you, that the devil wouldn't lie to us and, and tempt us to think that the peace that Christ accomplishes isn't real. So I pray, Lord, as we head to the table, we would joyfully remember that our peace has been accomplished. It is finished, as Christ said on the cross, and that by his body and his blood for us, we have peace with you, Lord, and we have peace with each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.